So last week we looked at Jesus' Jesus's first public, public miracle. And it really wasn't uh, his first general public miracle because it was at a, at a wedding. And so it wasn't, uh, the whole city wasn't invited to see uh, what was going to happen. But it, it was his first demonstration of divine power for other people to see other than his mother, who, as Pastor Renee said last week, I would imagine she, the reason she asked Jesus to do something about the fact that they had ran out of wine was because she knew something was special about Jesus. And so, um, and so this is the demonstration of his compassion. Jesus demonstrated his compassion. I mean, why, why, what, what else would motivate Jesus to create more wine? They ran out of wine. Hey, that's, that's their fault. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have enough wine. But they ran out, and so it, that, that right there was a demonstration of his compassion, that he cared and was compassionate for people, and he wanted to provide for their needs. And, and then, of course, when you look in, in Jesus' life throughout his ministry, you see multiple, multiple demonstrations of his compassion. And because of his compassion, he would reach out and do miracles. He would heal the sick, open blind eyes, open the ears of those that were deaf, and he even would raise the dead. He would calm the winds and the waves, and he would just demonstrate great compassion for people. Well, the miracle we're going to look at tonight in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes into the temple during the Feast of, pa- during the feast of Passover, is, is actually another miracle. It is the, the first public miracle of Jesus. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into why it is actually a, a miracle later on as we go through the text. But he demonstrates not a miracle of compassion, but a miracle of anger. He is angry at what has, what has taken place and what has taken place amongst the Jewish people and how they have perverted true genuine worship. You know, God must be worshipped correctly. You can't just, now, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about worship. The, the, the title of this message is The Fundamentals of True Worship. And so when I'm speaking of true worship, I'm not talking specifically about music. That is one form of worship. When we come together as believers in Christ and we gather whether it's in a living room with an acoustic guitar or in a in a sanctuary like this with an with an acoustic guitar and we sing songs that's that's worship that's coming from our heart and is being manifested through our songs and what we sing and what we say that's one element of worship but worship is a whole lot more broad than that worship has to do with our life has to do with how you live when you leave the gathering of, of the saints. It's, worship has to do with how you treat your wife or how you treat your husband or how you work on your job. Worship is all-encompassing in your life. And so when we think of worship, I don't want us to think tonight of music. True, the, the, the fundamental elements of true worship, I'm talking about our life. To worship God with your life means that you are, as this song said that we were singing, you know, with my life be lifted high. With my with my words, with, with everything I have, take all of my life. That's, that's what genuine worship is. And God, when we worship him, he must be worshiped correctly. God has instituted and established appropriate ways to worship him. And so we're going to talk about three fundamental ways, fundamental elements of worship, true worship, that we're going to see in this text in John chapter 2. But not everybody worships correctly. And even when it comes to music, we'll go specific here to talk about songs. Not every 
song that we sing. There's songs that people sing in churches that I would say is not really even genuine true worship. To, for it to be worship, what, what must the song do? It's got to talk about God at least, right? It's got to exalt Jesus. There's some, some songs, now I'm not, Miko's not in here. And there's some other worship people might be in here, but, um, you know, there's some songs that I've heard at other churches that it's basically just about, about me. I'm singing about myself. That's not worship. That, I'm worshiping myself and making myself the center of my song, the song we're singing. So worship has to be genuine musical worship. If it's actually going to be worship, it has to lift up the name of Jesus. It has to talk about his character, his nature, his attributes, what he's done on the cross for us, what his work on our behalf has to be about him, for him, for his exaltation, for his glory. And so not everyone worships in song correctly. Not everyone worships God correctly in their allegiance to who they call God. So you know there's false religious systems that are out there. And not, not, not all roads lead to the same place. Not all roads lead to heaven. Jesus, and we're going to look at that. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he is the only way. No man comes into the Father except through Jesus Christ. And so there are people who worship God incorrectly. There are people who take the worship of God and they make it into something completely different, something it was not intended to be. And this is actually what was going on during Jesus' day. This is what was happening. God... God is, was, is the one true God, and he had his people, the Jewish people, and they were called to worship him as the one true God, and they were in the midst of a culture and a time of a multiplicity of gods, and people would worship the sun God and the, and the God of the trees and all these other different types of gods, but the Jews were set apart, and they worshiped the one true God, and the Jewish religious leaders were called to point people to the one true God, to Jehovah God, so that they would worship him and exalt him. But down the line, they perverted the worship of God, and they began to worship God incorrectly. They began to be false leaders, and they weren't demonstrating what it meant to really genuinely worship God. And this is what we see. So what, what we're going to look at in John 2 is Jesus is coming in to, 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 to do his first public, powerful demonstration of his might amongst the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the, the scene he's coming in, Jesus talks about in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, it's the famous woes of the Pharisees and the scribes, those that are called to, to, to sit over the law of Moses. To, 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 it's the ones, the scribes and Pharisees were given the law of God, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and they were told, you are, you are to tend to that word and to explain that word, interpret that word, and, and, and teach the law of God to my people. And this is what had happened to them. Let's read a few sections in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That's what that means. They sit on Moses' seat. That means that they sit in the position of being the overseers of God's law. God said, I've given the law through Moses, and now I want you to be the caretakers of my law and teach my people. They sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. So what is God, what's Jesus saying there? He's saying, he's saying, you need to listen to God's law. God's law is good. That's what that means right there. Because God's law is good. Some people say, well, the Old Testament is not good. 
We don't need to worry about the Old Testament. No, God's law, his word in the Old Testament is just as relevant and true as the New Testament is. Now, obviously, there are some regulations in Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament. Ceremonial law and customs have been done away since Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice. But the heart of the law, that God is holy, God is just, God is true, God is righteous, and he demands obedience. That is true then, and it is true now. So he says, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Not their works. Why? For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's amazing. How far had these religious leaders gone? How far had they taken the truth of God's word and perverted the heart of it in their own lives? Verse 5, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. And a phylactery was a leather pouch that would be worn on their head, and in it would be portions of scripture from the Old Testament, from the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and, and that's what a, a phylactery was. They'd wear it around their head, and, and they took that from the Old Testament where it says that God's word should ever be before your eyes. And so they took it very literally. We're going to wear God's word on our head. It's always in front of us. And so they made their phylacteries broad. I wonder what that looked like. How big were these leather pouches? So everyone can see that they are keeping God's law ever in front of them. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So they, they, they love the outward appearance of holiness, to be esteemed as holy and righteous. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, and that is so strong what Jesus is saying there. Listen to what he's saying. He's talking to the caretakers of God's law. They had memorized, the Pharisees memorized the first five books of our Old Testament by heart. They could quote it. And he's telling them, you neither enter yourselves into the kingdom of heaven. You're, you don't even, you're not even in there. That's amazing. No wonder they killed Jesus. Nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him Twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is, the, this is the nature, this is the position of the religious system Jesus walks into that we're going to see in John chapter 2. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe off of your spices even. You say God's law only required that they would tithe off of their income, a portion of their income and their harvest of their fields. And they would tithe off of more than that just to demonstrate that they were fastidious and that they were holy and spiritual. They would tithe even off of their spices. You tithe off of your dill, your mint, your cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought you to have done without neglecting the others. Now listen to this. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What does that mean? A gnat was the smallest insect, smallest object that was considered unclean to the Jews. A camel 
was the largest animal that was considered unclean. So what the Jews would do, what the Pharisees would do, the Pharisees, they would, even in their drinks, just in case there would have been a gnat that would get into their drink, before they would drink it, they would strain it, pour it through a strainer into another cup, just in case so they would not swallow an unclean insect, a gnat. Jesus says, you're straining on a gnat, but you're actually swallowing a camel. It's like you're, sw- you're missing the point. You're swallowing the biggest unclean animal that, that, that there is in spirit because you're missing the point of all of this. What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? Will you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence? You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. That's the gospel message right there. The inside has to be clean first, and then the outside will be clean. But they had it backwards. It spruce up the outside, and that is false religion right there. Across the board, everywhere you see false religion, that's what separates Christianity from all other attempts to be right with God. All other attempts to be right with God tells you that you have to try to earn God's favor by good works. And nobody can tell you how good you have to be to actually get it done. Christianity is the only religion that tells you you can't do it. It tells you actually you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It is impossible for you to be right with God on your own. Man, that, that's some bad news, right? Well, that's the bad news of the gospel. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so gloriously beautiful because when we see that we can't earn God's approval and that we're not trying to spruce ourselves up on the outside, we actually are looking to be crucified on the inside. A, a, a crucifixion with Christ, like it says in Galatians 2.20, we must be crucified with Christ. Our old man is crucified and one new man rises to life. And because of that, our outside starts to look different over a course of time. We start changing. Our attitudes change. Our thinking changes. That's the gospel. But this is where Jesus was walking up into, in the temple. It's the feast of Passover. Let's, let's read this first section in John 2, 13 through 17, and see what Jesus did. And I want to give you some background about the feast of Passover and what was going on. John 2, 13 through 17, it says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what's going on here is that you have the Feast of Passover. Feast of Passover and once a year, Jews from all over would, would, uh, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And so they would travel from far distances to get there. And they had to have an animal, a sheep or an oxen, to, to sacrifice, to atone for their sins. And the Feast of Passover, as we know, is a celebration, a reminder back in Egypt whenever God was sending the last plague and he tells them to sacrifice a, a spotless animal and put the blood over the doorpost. And when the death angel comes, I will pass over your homes and none of your firstborn sons will be killed. 
And so they are celebrating God's deliverance, the Passover of God, his, his redemption, his, his, uh, his, his, his freedom, the freedom that he brought them from Egyptian bondage. And so this is what they would celebrate every year. And so when these Jews would travel from far places, it was inconvenient for them to have to try to bring a sacrifice for everyone in their family, for everyone in their caravan. And so people in the temple said, hey, yeah, we, we got you covered. We're going to sell you some animals. No problem. And so that's what, that's what would take place there. They would sell oxen and sheep to those that were coming for sacrifice. Okay? And then you had these money changers. So this is what would happen when you'd have Jews from other countries where currency was different. It was different than the currency that was in Jerusalem. These, every year when, the Jew, when these Jews would come, every Jewish male had to pay temple tax every year. And so when they would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, for the Feast of Passovers, to bring a sacrificial animal to sacrifice, he, these Jewish men would have to pay their temple tax. But they were coming with currency that they couldn't take at the temple. And so these money changers were there, not only to exchange money to buy the animals, but to exchange money for, for them to pay taxes, to have the right currency. So here's what was taking place. The temple was turned into this situation of extortion of people for their money. And God's house was just, if you can picture it, uh, for the Feast of Passover, historians would say that in Jerusalem during that time, there would be over, over probably estimated 1.5 to 2 million people would come into Jerusalem at this time. And at any given time, in around the outer courts and in, inside near, around the temple, there would be anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people around there. You can only imagine what that looked like. Animals all over the place. Noisy, bustling, people bustling in and out and, and people getting t- taken advantage of and extortion was taking place. And, and God's holiness and his reverence was, was, not, was not lifted up in those Times And so Jesus is coming in, he's seeing this chaos in this temple, extortion and thievery and, and, and people, these religious leaders are taking God's holiness and what is actually symbolic of God's power through the Passover and they're making it as a means to get rich off of people. And it disgusts God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he says, you're taking my father's house the one true God, and you're turning religion on its head. You're turning worship on its head, and you're making it something that it should not be. And that, just as it disgusts God, as we see demonstrated through the life of Jesus, the Son of God, that disgusts God today. It still disgusts God when people take the worship of God, and they make it something it's not supposed to be. And so this is what we see. This is why Jesus came in, and he overturned those tables He kicked them all out. And this is why it was a miracle. Let's think about this. Thousands of people in the temple, in the outer courts. And here comes one man. It says he took and made a whip of cords. Probably from the ropes that were used to haul in these animals for sacrifice. And he's gathering these cords that were used to haul in these animals. And he's braiding them together. He's looking around. He's filled with righteous anger over what these people have turned God's holy temple into. And he says he drives them all out. One man. How is that possible? I mean, you can take the biggest man in this room right now. The biggest man. Who's the biggest man? Let's look around. 
I think Walt's probably the biggest man. I've played basketball against Walt. That's the biggest man right there. I'm not going to embarrass you and make you stand up, but man, that Walt is a big man. Walt, right now, could get a whip of cords and try to drive just all of us out. You think it's going to happen? No. It's not going to happen. One of you got a gun in here, at least. <laughs> no, but, but, but even Walt, as big as he is, he could, he's going to knock me out. He's going to deal with me. He's going to deal with all those other little small people. You, most of, you get Heath in on the mix, and you get, you get Danny right there in on the mix. They're going to stop him. This is Jesus. And you, look, you go back to Isaiah 53. What did it say about Jesus? What did the prophet Isaiah say about Jesus? He said, when you looked at him, there's nothing to be desired of Jesus. He was this lowly-looking man. He didn't come, and people were thinking, man, look at this guy. He's a stud. No, he, he didn't look like anything that any man wanted to look like. But he drove out all of these people. It was a miracle. It was a demonstration of his power that he was the son of God. And so the first fundamental element of true worship, genuine worship, is is this. Number one, God must be worshiped correctly. And I've been saying this Since the beginning of this message, God must be worshipped correctly. Jesus overturns the money changers' tables and drives out those that are selling the sheep and the oxen. And this is actually an act. This act by Jesus is a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. Let's read Malachi 3, 1 1 through 3. Prophet Malachi says this, Behold, I send my messenger, speaking of Jesus, who and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you... Seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand where, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Who were the sons of Levi? They're the priests, those that were over the temple. He will purify and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And so this is a fulfillment. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from Malachi. He's going to come into the temple, and he's going to bring purification. He's saying, you are worshiping incorrectly, and I'm here to overturn everything that you're doing. He is forcibly saying, this is not right worship. This is not what my father desires worship to be. So what does this mean for us? We too must be careful to not trivialize trivialize what we do when we gather as Christians. Man, think about that. Think about what we do when we gather as believers, when we gather in our living rooms for our life groups, when you gather as Christians around a dinner table, you're having a meal, you're sharing bread, As Christians, that's a holy moment. That's biblical. Breaking bread with one another. When we gather on Wednesdays and on Sundays, what are we doing here? It's not just just an hour of time that you're devoting into the middle of your week. Church is not an hour diversion from my regularly scheduled life events. It is a sacred time where we come and we gather and we're we're coming and we're humbly coming before the before God, and we're saying, Lord, here's my life. I'm telling you that on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, my life is yours. 
I'm giving you my life, my time, my family, my talent, my service, my money. Giving you all that I am, Lord. My life is yours. I'm submitting to you. It is a holy moment. When we gather and we sing songs, those are holy moments where brothers and sisters in Christ, when we sing, this is, this is such a powerful truth here. When we sing songs together, you know, we don't know what each other goes through all the time, right? But sometimes we do. Sometimes we know when we struggle, and we should as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I remember one time, Troy Castile, he, he lost his daughter tragically in a car accident last year. Was it two years ago? Last year. And I remember watching him at the funeral in the front row right here. And I remember watching him weeks after. I would turn around and watch him sit back there. And he's like this. He's got his hands up. He's worshiping the Lord. He has no good answers for why his daughter died. It was tragic. It was terrible. It was an accident. But... I am encouraged and strengthened in the Lord when I see his courage and I see his strength and I see him exalting a God that he loves and that he trusts. That's the holy moment that happens when we gather as we worship, when our voices are lifted up in unison. We're all singing the same song to the same God who has transformed our lives. The Holy Spirit is there in our midst. God himself is with us. We don't have to look for the manifestation of his presence. I think for so long, Christians have been chasing the manifestation of God's presence in so many different places. I want you to know that when two or three gather together in his name, he is there in the midst. He's right there. We're looking for the goosebumps. We're looking for some other tangible sense. God is here. And so because God is here, we worship. Because God is here, it's a holy moment. So we have to be careful not to make little of what we do when we gather as Christians. Church should not be reduced to something we pull off. This is not an event that we pull off. It's not an event, it's not an event that we just pull off. Okay, we got it done. We had the worship. We sung the songs. We took communion. The pastor preached the message. And now we're going home. We got it. It was great. It was, a, it was a great event. It was a great experience. We had a great experience here today. Church is not an experience. Church is a, is a worship service. Where we're servicing God. We're servants of God and we're worshiping him. Church should not be reduced to something we can pull off or a program that we can make happen. God is holy and worship of God is deeper than that. God's holy. Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. This is church right here. I'll show you what church looks like. In, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, filled the church. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why does it say holy, holy, holy? Because God is three times holy. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Anytime you see repetition in Scripture where God says the same word over and over again, 
holy, 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 it means he is infinitely holy. That means we can say he's holy, but it means that we should not, we should not stop saying holy forever. That's what that means. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So what was it that Isaiah said when he saw the Lord? Woe is me. Woe is me. God, you're holy and I'm not. And if I'm, if, if, if I'm going to be right with you, it's going to be because you touch my lips and you atone for my sins. God is holy. And when we gather, we have to worship God correctly. It's the first fundamental. If you don't, if, look, if we don't get past that point, you can't even worship. You, you, you cannot worship God. You cannot. You can, you can think you're worshiping God with your life, with your song. But if you don't see God correctly, it's not worship. It's not worship. There's people who see God incorrectly. They don't see Jesus as the son of God. They think God is a genie in a bottle. It's not worship. That's narcissism. You must see God correctly if you're going to worship him. Secondly, second fundamental truth of true worship is that Jesus must be the center. Let's look at the text. So Jesus comes, he drives out the money changers, he drives out those that are extorting people for their money, for animals, and for for the exchange of money, the exchange rates. He drives them out and says, you've taken my father's house and you've turned worship on its head. You've made it something it should not be. And let's look at John 2, 18 through 22. It says this, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, who do you think you are? Is what they're, they're saying here. Jesus answered them. I love this answer. This is his answer. He says, go ahead, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. So they're thinking, what? Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days? And so obviously they're thinking one thing, and Jesus is saying something different. Because look at their answer. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. What a, a unique number there. And you will raise it up in three days? It means if we destroy this temple, knock it down, everything, flat on the ground. It took us 46 years, but you say you're going to rebuild it in three? Like, you're a, you're, a, you're a wild man. But 21 says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised, so this is speaking now into the future. John's referencing the future after the resurrection. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. They went back and they went, ah. Oh, I get it now. I thought Jesus was an idiot. <laughs> I didn't know. What in the world was he talking about back then? You know, they probably talked like that back then too. <laughs> they're like, this guy is foolish. I don't know what their word for idiot was back then, but they were like, this guy's crazy. And then they thought, oh, I get it now. Their eyes were open. That's what he meant. He meant destroy this temple, and it's going to be raised up in three days. 
So, so, so the second element of genuine true worship is that Jesus must be the center. So he's telling the, these Jews that he just demonstrated this mighty power of driving out all of these people from the temple. He's saying, you want to know where my power comes from to do this? Where my authority comes from to, to do this? I'm going to rise from the dead. That means I'm the son of God. And because I'm the son of God, I demand worship. I demand allegiance. I'm God in the flesh. That's why I have the power to do this. So any genuine worship of God, true genuine worship, has to start, number one, you got to worship him correctly. You have to come with awe and wonder and reverence into God's house. You have to approach God humbly before his throne. And Jesus has to be at the center because that's the center of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders were astonished at his authority and the power that he demonstrated. Jesus cryptically says, because you will destroy this physical temple of my body and I will rise from the dead in three days, because of this, I am the son of God. To worship God correctly, Jesus must be at the center of your worship. He must be the object of your worship. The object of your worship. Can you think of a, of, of a story where somebody in the book of John was talking to Jesus about worship? A woman at the well, John chapter 4. Very, firm, very famous story. We're going to get to it. I'm like, uh, I don't know if it's going to fall to me to cover that section or if I'm preaching Pastor Renee's message right now. But John chapter 4, this issue of worship. Jesus tells this woman at the well here. So this is a Samaritan woman. And she's coming to the well, the, 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 the public well where, where, where women would come and draw water. And she was a Samaritan woman. And so Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans because Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They had, some Jews had intermarried with some outsiders of the Jewish faith, and so they were Samaritans. They were not considered true-blood Jews, and so the true Jews despised the Samaritans. And she was a woman. So Jesus is a Jew, and he's having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, drawing water. And he tells her the famous line, he says, look, he says, I can give you water. You're coming out here, you're experiencing shame. You're coming in the middle of the day. It's hot. All the other women come in the morning, but you're coming here. And like, I'm telling you, I can give you water. But if you take the water I give you, you will never thirst again. And she says, sir, where can I find this water? I need this water right now. Right now, right? So that's kind of the background here. Let's pick up the story in John 4. And they're going to have a conversation about worship. John 4, 16 through 26, and Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Oh, now it's getting a little tricky here. People, I mean, I could preach so many messages, right? Man, says, man. People don't, people like religion. But they don't like when religion gets in your business. People are okay with religious ideas. Big man upstairs and you know, have a better life and apply this principle and you'll be good. But what does Jesus do? He's trying to get this woman to recognize that he's the son of God, the source of true, genuine, life-giving water. What's the first thing that he does? He steps on her toes. He, conf- he confronts her about her sin. He says, go call your husband and come here. Well, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are, you're, you're right in saying, I have no husband. You have had five husbands, 
And the one whom you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so now this woman's like, wait a minute, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Because I did not tell you any of this. I don't know how you know this. So now she wants to get religious now. She wants to start getting religious. I See, I, our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, speaking of the Jews, you say that the Jews say that, that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to, to her, this is so good, woman, believe me. Believe me, that's Christianity. That's the heart of the gospel. Believe me. Believe me. Don't listen to what they say or what they say. You need to believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22. You, you, you worship what you do not know. Man, how confrontive is that? We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. That, man, if you would say that today, that meant you would lose your job. That's racism, right? It's a racist statement right there. That's bold. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. What does that mean? People have made this idea. What is worshiping in spirit and truth? I don't think people even know what that means a lot of times. I, I grew up not even knowing what that means. It's like this idea. i got to worship in spirit and truth. i got to figure out what does that mean. It means you worship God correctly. And how is the only correct way to, to worship God? It's through Jesus Christ. That's what that scripture means. You, to worship God in spirit and truth means that you worship Jesus. You don't worship yourself. You don't worship a false religious system. You worship Jesus. And that's what Jesus is trying to convince her of. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know. So now she's, now she's like, I'm going to debate here with you. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When, when he comes, he's going to tell us everything that we, that we need to know. Basically, she was telling him, I don't believe what, what you're saying here. You're telling me that the time's going to come where we're going to worship in spirit and truth and, and all of this, and you want me to believe you? I, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus put the bullseye right on his chest. He said, you want to know what truth looks like? You want to know what real worship looks like? You want to know how to have living waters that never run dry? It's right here. That's genuine, true worship. Genuine, true worship worship in our life in anybody's life we come at it first with humble adoration contrite hearts humbly with reverence we don't trivialize what we do and our affection centers directly on jesus because he is the only one that's truly worthy of worship any system of worship that points away from the sufficiency of christ and salvation that salvation meaning salvation comes from him is a false system of worship. John 14 says, I am, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. That's the second element. It's got a center on Christ. The third element is this. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The heart of the matter, when it comes to worship, is the matter of the heart. John 3, let's continue on in the text. John 2. So Jesus drove out, people in the temple 
He gave a cryptic message as to why he had the authority to do it and nobody understood what he was saying, not the, not the religious leaders and not the ones that were following him. And then this is what happens. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is so interesting here. So they believed in his name. You think, hey, that's good. That's good, right? You believe, they believed in his name because they saw the signs. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That's profound right there. That means there's some people who can believe in the name of Jesus because they see something powerful, but Jesus is not committing himself to them yet because obviously they're not truly followers of him yet. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So the third element of genuine true worship is that the matter of the heart, that, how do I phrase that? The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's all about the heart. God knows our heart. So, so people can come in here and they can look like they believe in God. You can have people in your life, in your family. They see powerful signs of God's power. But we see right here, Jesus may not entrust himself to them. See, when you get saved, you entrust yourself to Christ. And what does he do? He entrusts himself to you. John 17 says that all those that come to him, it says that he loses not one. Not one of them come out of his grip. That means that he's entrusting himself to them. He's holding on to them. That's what it means. We are in the vine He is in us. We are together with Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We are raised to newness of life like Christ was. That's the picture of salvation. True worship means that you not only see that God is good, you not only see that he's powerful, but you follow him. You lay down your life. You have a heart change. Salvation is about the heart. Worship is about the heart Worship is about the heart. True worship of God is a matter of the heart. God looks at the heart of man. It's the heart that matters. You guys remember the story when the prophet Samuel was going to look for a king? Right? Going to Jesse's house. He's looking for a king. And he sees this one guy that he thinks, man, this guy must be the next king of Israel. Let's look at what it says there. But when Samuel came, he looked at Eliab, Eliab, and thought, surely... Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Don't, 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 don't look at don't look at how they raise their hands. Don't look at don't look at the things that they say. Don't look at what you th- of what they're saying they are or what they look like. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's how God looks. God looks on the heart. You could have somebody, they don't look like a Christian. They don't dress like a Christian. They may have tattoos all the way up down their arms. They may have a a nose piercing. I'm going to mess up some of you people. They may not look like a Christian. They could be believers in Jesus Christ because God sees their heart. God knows who they are. God knows our hearts. We can't hide from God. When you're genuinely committed to Jesus Christ, you're his. 
And he is yours. And he commits himself to you. God doesn't look like we do. The Pharisees, in this next section, I just want to cover this next section, another example of how men look, but how God looks in in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew, the Pharisees, they complained that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they eat. They would complain about a lot of us too. And And look what Jesus says in Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of where? The heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands is not defile a person. So what's Jesus confronting there? He's saying, you're all worried about the outside of the cup. That's, the, that's Matthew 23. You're worried about all the stuff on the outside. But I'm telling you, God judges the thoughts and intents of man's heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's, that's, the, that's the third element of genuine, true worship. We, the, 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 the first one is that we come humbly with reverence. We make Jesus the center of our worship and we surrender our heart. We say, God, my life is yours. People believed in in Jesus based upon the signs that they had seen, not because they were ready to follow him. Jesus was looking for genuine conversion rather than enthusiasm for the spectacular. Believing in his name involves much more than just intellectual assent. It calls for wholehearted commitment of one's life to be a disciple of Jesus. It's not just I believe that Jesus is real, he existed, but I'm giving him my life. I'm his disciple. Have my heart. You know, our, our, our hearts must cry out like David did in Psalms 139. You know, I'm speaking of, of those of what it takes to, to, to become a Christian, you have to give God your heart and you have to be his disciple and follow after him. But, but what about those of us who are Christians, who are following him? I think this needs to be our cry, just as David cried in Psalms 139. We should never stop praying this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and test me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Just as it takes a heart surrender to become a Christian, we, we, we never leave that posture of heart surrender. We say, Lord, search me, test me, know me. See if there's any grievous way in me. You know, in, in conclusion, before Jesus cleansed the temple, before he gave the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, in, in the Old Testament, The prophet Micah was sent by God to to deliver a message of judgment to the leaders and the people of of Jerusalem. Social injustice and religious corruption was all over the place during Michael's day, during Micah's day. And God was confronting that through a, a prophecy of judgment to his people. And he used Micah. And it's very similar to what we were reading what we were talking about in Matthew 23. I just want you to listen to it. This is Micah 6, 6 through 8. It says this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. So do you see what Micah is saying there? Before we get to what he says is good, he's saying, you think you need to do all these things. You got to do all these things on the outside to try to be good. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What's Micah saying there? I think he's saying this, that spiritual blindness had led God's people to offer everything except the one thing that he wanted, which, which was what? A spiritual commitment of the heart which right behavior would flow out from. They were offering everything else that they thought that God required. But what, did, what does God want? He wants our heart. He wants our heart. John, John Bloom, he's a, an author. He, he, he wrote this on an online blog about Micah 6. He says this, The glorious gospel miracle is that what God requires of us in Micah 6, what he requires of us in Micah 6, which is, which is justice, kindness, and walking humbly with our God, what he requires of us, he purchase, purchases for us and accomplishes in us. So, when the Spirit convicts a Christian of sin, he never condemns. His searchlight is redemptive. He exposes us only to break the power of canceled sin and set us increasingly free to walk as Christ walked, which is doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. It's all about the heart. Genuine worship, genuine true worship. The fundamentals of worship is that we come with reverence and awe. We make Jesus the center and we say, God, here's my heart. Here's my heart. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word tonight. God, I thank you, Lord, that Lord, that when we called, Lord, you answered. Lord, that when we surrendered our life and gave you our heart, God, you transformed us from the inside out. And God, I pray, Lord, that as a result of that heart transformation, that we would approach you correctly. That we would not downplay our worship of you. We would not downplay our commitment to you, that we would not make religion or our Christianity something that we just simply do and not something or someone that we are. God, let let, let, let who we are be be, be who we are in our heart. Let our heart cry out to you that we love you, that we want to know you. Lord, search our hearts. Know us. Lord, you do know us. See if there's any unclean thing in us Lord we submit to you God I pray Lord that as people from the outside see who we are they see that we are humbly submitted to you they see that we are giving we are giving you our heart they see life change they see that we seek justice and mercy and kindness that we walk humbly before you God I pray that our lives would be attractional that our lives of true genuine worship would be attractional to those that don't know you Lord I thank you for your people here tonight. Bless and strengthen them by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.